Hey, it's Justin, and I have a big announcement and personal invitation for you. This May, we're inviting a small group of people to Austin to learn how to grow their wealth tax-free and get access to some of my personal friends and experts in the industry. We did something similar last year, and the feedback was incredible, so we set aside a few tickets for non-Mastermind members to join us for this event. You'll spend some time learning from Garrett Gunderson, the brilliant and hilarious mind behind Money Unmasked, and the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Killing Sacred Cows, and one of my favorite books, What Would the Rockefellers Do? He's going to share his insights on how to grow your assets tax-free with life insurance. And you'll also get some time with Rob Dial, the mastermind behind the Mindset Mentor Podcast, who will share with you how to find fulfillment in success. Then you'll get to participate in a special investment presentation, in-depth discussions, and breakout sessions on two crucial yet often overlooked topics, personalized tax strategies and wealth building. Plus, when you register, you'll have the opportunity to attend a one-day course the day before on vetting deals. If you want to learn our process so that you can make great decisions, there's no better teacher than Hans Box. This is our most requested topic, and it'll be an exceptional course. Seats for the course and the one-day event are limited, so if you're interested, please grab your ticket today. I always say you're just one connection, one decision, and one strategy away from true freedom, and I look forward to helping you on your journey. Head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live or click the link around this video and secure your ticket now before we sell out. Hope to see you in Austin this May. Once again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live. I can't wait to see you there. Now, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Did you know that the global gaming market is set to reach $256 billion by 2025 and that more than 3.2 billion people worldwide play video games? Another astonishing stat. According to Sensor Tower, players worldwide spent $41.2 billion on mobile games and in-app purchases in Q1 of 2022 alone. Sadly, with all the money being spent on in-game assets or currencies in video games, the total the players have true ownership over is zero. To give you context, with traditional gaming, Players will spend money to buy digital assets like skins, weapons, and other virtual items. The problem is that they can't trade them, sell them, or even use them across different games. Today's guest, Tim Yesta, is on a mission to solve that problem. Tim is the founder of Coin Games, a game development studio focused on building AAA blockchain games. His team is revolutionizing the gaming industry and bridging the gap between traditional and blockchain video games. Tim's vision is to not only develop high-quality games with great gameplay, but ones that will allow players to own their in-game assets so they can do whatever they want with them. In this episode, you'll learn how Web3 is revolutionizing the world of gaming and is becoming over a $200 billion market that investors need to pay attention to, why Tim quit his cushy sales job making over $3 million a year during the recession to pursue his passion for gaming, and the values required to build a world-class team that will 10x the growth of your business. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Tim has a special gift for Lifestyle Investor Podcast listeners. 
He recorded a masterclass on Web3, the next generation of the internet, and its implications for entrepreneurs and investors exclusively for the lifestyle investor community. To get access to this gift, visit lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash 127. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Tim Yesta. What's up, Tim? So glad to have you on the show. Hey, thank you, Justin. Really excited to be here. And uh, yeah, I always love the show and honored to be a guest. Well, cool. This is fun. I think it's this is one of the ones that I've looked forward to for a while because the more I get to know you, and obviously it's been really easy to get to know you. We've got some mutual connections, some mutual friends. You're part of the Lifestyle sure. Investor Mastermind. So I've gotten a chance to get a front row seat for all the cool things that you're up to in the world. And I am really just excited to like have people hear about your incredible story, hear about the cool things you're up to, and even offer just some great insight into this world of Web3 and gaming and NFTs and skins and blockchain technology at its most foundational root level. And I know you're the perfect person for that. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's an exciting world for sure. There's a lot going on. And I think there's a lot of folks out there who have seen bits and pieces and they either range from totally confused by it or think it's crazy all the way to those that believe like myself that it's a trend that's going to uh, change a couple hundred billion dollar a year industry. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to chat about it. Well, cool. We'll, we'll fully dig in. I think it'd be fun to kind of take a step back because... You're not originally from the U.S., but you spent the majority, you know, of your adult years here in the U.S., but uh, you had a different upbringing and a different experience via just really through your childhood growing up in South Africa, and I'd love to kind of hear what that was like for you and why did you come to the U.S.? Yeah. So like you said, we grew up in South Africa. I moved here when I was 11, um, 38 now. So I've been here, you know, most of my life, but my family always wanted to move to America. I think growing up in other countries, you have this view of America as the land of opportunity, which even though it's maybe not what exactly what we thought it would be, it truly is still that. I mean, I think it's a place where you can, especially if you're willing to work hard and do what others are not willing to do. You can have a, an amazing life here. And so my mom had a comfortable life there. And it was always prior to my dad passing was always a desire of ours to move to America. And yeah, get to really to give us kids, my brother and I an opportunity at a better life. And they had that plan. And then my dad passed, which sent our family into kind of a tailwind situation and went from bad to worse as the economy kind of started to tank. And then unrest in the country. And it kind of hit a fever pitch for us where we found ourselves in the school. I mean, much like it is today, but just they're teaching us what happens if people come in and shoot in the school. And we were barely surviving, but we really still had a very strong desire and hung on to that dream of one day coming to America. And this is a, I could talk for hours on just this one subject, but we started doing a little thing we called envisioning where we would take time every night, despite the fact that in the natural, we didn't have the money or the resources or anything. And we would, as a family, my mom would sit us down with her two boys and we would dream about coming to America. And we would actually take turns talking about going on the flight and what are you going to eat the morning of the flight? And what are you packing? And what movie are you watching on the flight? And she would get us to engage our I guess our imaginations and our belief and our faith that that was going to be a reality one day. And yeah, just almost like a miracle, we got a phone call from a family that knew my dad before he passed and we hadn't talked to him in years. And they said, would you want to come to America? We're moving and we could apply for a visa. And my mom was a teacher at one time. And so she came over and taught their kids and us. And so we had our way and we sold everything we had. And it amounted to like around $3,000. That was all our net worth at the time. And with $3,000 and a, a bed to sleep on, we moved and uh, the rest is, is history. So yeah, that's the, the short version of a long, amazing story. 
That's incredible. And I yeah. love how your mom was doing some vision painting for you kids yeah. and kind of walking you through like what, you know, tell me about the meal. Tell me what it's going to be like. I think that's amazing. And for those that are watching and listening, I think it's important to recognize the unrest that happened during that era compared to kind of what's going on now. So right now we're experiencing kind of the end of the fallout of Silicon Valley Bank. And so, you know, there is this frenzy with that. You have Signature Bank. You've got really in the stock market yesterday, and this will come out here in a couple of weeks, we're going to we're going to fast forward this one and kind of move it up. But like right now, today, it was interesting to see how shaky these banks are. We still have Credit Suisse kind of on their heels. And I share all this because it, it creates some like financial unrest. But I would love for you just to describe what it was like in South Africa at the time that you were moving, like you had to get out because it was really crazy. Like this was life and death going on in South Africa, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously the circumstances were different, but the elements were exactly the same where there was a, a country being shaken at its roots and you had kind of the powers that be that had controlled maybe the last 50 years that were, it was, it was shifting into new hands And that produced good and bad at the same time. And unfortunately, in a time where there's turmoil, that's when the worst people in society decide to take advantage of that unsettled nature. So crime was crazy. And that's why, again, they were, there'd been a school. We were in a, my mom spent probably half our income putting us in a small Christian school to try to give my brother and I a great environment to learn and really was her whole life was being lived to give us a better opportunity. And so there were times where she didn't always have food to send with me to school or barely had food for me, but she kept us in a good school. So that was kind of just a circumstances. But even in the school that was meant to be as the best she could do to scrape everything together every month to meet the payment to keep us there, they started training us like drills to you know evacuate if shooters are come in because a school just a few miles down the road it actually had that happen where some gunmen came in and just shot at the kids and teachers and so it was definitely a crazy time i was only 11 so i was probably shielded from some of it but i just remember it intensifying and but despite all that we just stuck to yeah just trusting that things were going to work out and applying the principles that we knew of the dream board and envisioning that. And then it was just overnight, we got an opportunity that came out of nowhere to, for us to move and yeah, and then got to America and had many years that struggled after that, but it's gotten better really since that day. And it's, it's been amazing, you know, so we're super fortunate to, to now be American citizens and I, and I still have my South African citizenship. I love South Africa and we go back as often as we can. We have some family that's there but uh, yeah, I, lo- I love America, despite the crazy times that we're in as a country ourselves. Yeah, well, I hear this a lot from different individuals, specifically those that were born in another country that moved here to the U.S. And in fact, one of the funds that I love investing in is immigrant founders, because there's a work ethic yeah. that is present that you just don't see in many other founders. And there's very much a strong consistency across the board. It's it's fascinating. And so I know that you have this drive and this ability to hustle and work hard and, and put in the hours for whatever the thing is. And, and I'm curious to see what it was that got you into entrepreneurship? Was it when you first started working at Vivint? Was it something before that as a precursor to Vivint? Because you had a very long career with them where you did exceptionally well, and so did your team. And I'd love to get into that a little bit before we get into some of the fun Web3 gaming type of content that we have to get into. Yeah, that's a great question that I'm excited to answer. I think, like you said, the reason immigrant founders, I believe, are in some cases as a category, a great bet to have is for me at least, and I think for many, it's a combination of being very close to having experienced a harder life. When you're given that opportunity, you take advantage of it. 
And I also think there a lot of times, and this is for sure for me as well, there's the knowledge that my mom gave up her life. And even though now in her later years, my brother and I are paying her back and we're trying to make her life amazing. She gave up her young adult life that could have been more comfortable being surrounded by family, being surrounded by friends, and left all that with the sole purpose of giving her kids a better opportunity. And so that's both a pressure that could be negative, but really for me has been a great positive because I feel that I owe it to my mom to be the best version of myself that I can possibly be in my life. And so that means aiming as high as I can and then giving every ounce of effort every day when I wake up to do it. And so it's been really just rooted in my heart that I love working. Like to me, we're on the earth to work and to produce and to create. And that's actually how we make the world a better place is rising to the very top of our potential as is that's how you infect the world and make it affect the world and make it a better place. And so, yeah, I think for me, the work ethic that led me into Vivint and then ultimately has led me to now take on this new venture in Web3 has been that core desire that I believe there's greatness inside of everyone. And the only way you see it is by putting yourself in tough situations, doing hard things, and then reaching for your highest potential. And so I did some hourly jobs. I went and got a degree in theology and I love people. And so I wanted to initially, the pathway was dedicate my life just to helping people. And then when I got my first couple jobs, I very quickly realized I just wasn't cut out to be told that you're worth $10 an hour and just show up. And whether you work or don't work, that's what you get. And I was always, I wanted to push myself. So I'd be outworking everyone, but the guy making 10 bucks an hour who works barely works and the guy making 10 bucks an hour works really hard they still get paid the same and and the pay is actually based on the lazy guy it's the lowest the employers willing to settle for is what they base it on so i very quickly realized it wasn't the system for me so that's what led me into sales i wanted a place where i could outwork everyone and then out earn everyone and so i worked extremely hard in sales my first year. And at 19, I made six figures. And I went from $12 an hour to over 100 grand as a 20-year-old. And I was still living at home, wasn't even paying rent until I drove up with a 350Z that I you know, <laughs> stupidly purchased <laughs> with my first uh, little bit of money. And my mom said, you know, you need to pay rent. And anyway, and then, but that set me on the pathway. And then I'm a, I'm a quiet person, but I'm uh, I would say I'm viciously competitive. Anyone who really knows me knows that I I just don't settle for anything except trying to be number one. Like if I do something, I don't expect to be number one immediately, but I do believe that I will outwork almost anyone in that industry. And what I found is that when you're a good learner, which I am, and when you are a hard worker, you will rise to the top. And then there's always some elements that are not in your control um, that, you know, might lead, you know, that, that, have to happen in order to be number one. For instance, there's a little magic in a bottle that always has to be there. But I find that if you show up consistently and you give your best effort and you're always learning, you create a lot of opportunities for magic in a bottle to happen. And a lot of times it eventually does. And so that's what my has happened in my career for sure. Man, I cannot believe as a 20-year-old, you made over $100,000. That is just mind-boggling. And by the way, I remember kind of a similar situation where, because uh, I was with Cutco, and so similarly, we were rewarded based on our results. So it wasn't an hourly thing. If you did really well, you were going to make really good income. And so at the time, I was ecstatic because I ended up earning $30,000 for the summer. And I was like, this is amazing. I can't right. believe you yeah. can do this. And by the way, that was more than my parents earned for the summer combined. Yep. Yep. And so... It was very eye-opening as to like what is possible and to think that you made over $100,000 as a college student, right? Yeah. That's just incredible. But you said something that I think is very profound, and I hope that everyone catches this. You said you were a good learner, and I think that there is a superpower that exists when you are curious and eager to learn and desiring knowledge. And I think when you have that or when you can train yourself to enjoy that, I think the world shifts in a very powerful place. 
and really kind of opens up some paths and, and creates some opportunities. Yeah, it does. It also just limits the, the downside risk in entering into new things. And you have to have that when you venturing into new territory. And so I kind of took myself through a process. That's actually how I got into sales. I was working for a millionaire and I was sitting at my computer and I decided like, you know, I'm 19 turning 20. This is before I got into sales. And I thought, you know, what I have on my side is time. And so if I start early enough, I could be a millionaire by 30, maybe 40, whatever. There's a date, but I've got time on my side, but I need to make moves now. I can't just hope one day I'll just blink and I'll be there. So I took out a, a notepad and I wrote down three characteristics that these two millionaires that I'd previously interned or worked for had in common. And they both have been in sales. They both are great leaders and they both had great work ethic. And so I circled sales as the one practical skill that I could set out to learn. And I just decided I'm going to go get a sales job. And this was actually in lieu of going back to school because I have a degree in theology, but I've never been to a business college or, you know, got a traditional business degree. And so I was considering that and I thought, well, let me try this first. So I walked into the office of one of those millionaires. I shared my plan with him that I wanted to be more like him, but I couldn't just work for him to learn that. I needed to go learn the skills he had. And um, and that's when I just called my friend and said, hey, is that sales job still available? And he's like, sure, it's door-to-door sales, but yeah, come on over. So I was there to learn the skill of selling. I actually wasn't trying to make money really doing it. I wanted to learn the skill that led to an amazing career. And I'm kind of doing that again now. I called that millionaire bootcamp. And now as a CEO of the game studio and working in blockchain, I'm starting to put myself through what I call CEO Academy instead of millionaire Academy, because uh, I want to know how to be the best CEO I can possibly be. And I believe over the next year, my goal is to interview anywhere from 40 to 50 CEOs and just start asking questions. And I'm sure the questions will evolve, but really just going back to the roots that made me successful the first time doing it again now, as I go into this new venture. So yeah, I love learning. It's the one way you can feel confident, even in uncharted territory is just go learn from the best people. Well, I think it's worth noting that as you moved up in Vivint, you not only were strong as a salesperson, but you yeah. moved into management, you started leading people, you really created one of the greatest sales organizations that Vivint ever has seen. And I'd love for you to just share any thoughts on that before we pivot into why you left and why you're pursuing this new business venture that clearly has more risk than the sure thing that you had with a high income because you were very successful at Vivint. Yeah, my career at Vivint was really quite amazing. I worked in sales for three years for Verizon, and then I moved over to Alarms. And it was technically a smaller company that eventually uh, kind of moved into Vivint. But I saw a new uh, opportunity to sell a service that I could work for four months at a time and make almost a year's income. And so my initial draw was just, I love the idea of making a lot of money in a really short window. And there were guys making almost $200,000 a year in four months. So I thought, well, that sounds amazing. And so I um, I went into it and I never ever worked only four months. That first year I worked about 11 months and every year after that I worked really 11 months. But I really fell in love with selling. So I became the top rep in the company my first year. And then that continued for multiple years. And I realized that I was also good at recruiting and training people. And so became passionate about becoming a great leader, influencing people, the whole, if you can add to your skill um, and that will add to your income, or you can add to your influence and go more horizontal and that will can exponentially add to your income. And so I started um, just teaching people to do what I did. So I stayed as a salesman as long as I possibly could only really about four years before I retired from Vivint did I come off the doors. So I was maintaining my position as a top rep while running the top team, while running you know one of the top regions. And I think by staying in the trenches as long as I could, that really set my career up. I loved leading the army from the front. I really believed in the you know, I think it was Napoleon that did that, but that method where you lead your army as the general from the front of the army, not the back. And um, yeah, and then just my competitive uh, nature. And and I also realized that um, it's not about teaching great salesmen, it's about building great men. 
and ladies, but it was majority men. And if I actually focused on mentoring men and leading, developing people, that the money took care of itself. And so I started learning to instill vision in people and teach um, good financial principles, something that you never find in sales organizations and, um, you know, teach them how to be better husbands and better dads and better just leaders in general. And that was really my core focus. So we taught just great principles to people. I obviously taught on sales as well, but there was a, a mix of that. And our culture, we called our region the Jedi, but the idea was that we're here to do good on the earth, to protect the innocent. And we were selling alarms, so it kind of connected. But the overall under the theme underneath was just we're we're meant to be the best in society. We're meant to be the people that lift our families up, that change our whole family story. And I really made that my mission, build great men, and then everything else will take care of itself. And it really did. And so we had great retention. We had um, in the 80 percentile retention year over year, which is unheard of in door-to-door sales, which is a very high turnover industry. And so we went from being one of the smallest uh, regions when we started. When I came over to Vivint after Platinum kind of fell apart, I actually came over with one manager and about 12 reps total. And when I was done uh, eight years later, I we had peaked at almost 700 people. We had done close to 300 million in revenue in a single year. I had 32 managers, I believe, 16 offices. So it was really incredible growth and learned a ton on how to run a company, how to recruit, how to build great culture, how to market. And I also got to watch Vivint go public during that time. I got to be on the floor the day they rang the bell and watch the inner workings practically too from the corporate side. So I I learned more than I ever thought I would when I set out just to be a door-to-door salesman. And yeah, it was was an amazing journey for sure. Well, earning the income that you earned as a top sales rep, uh, I can only imagine what the income was as a top manager or the top manager. Uh, And you've got a region of people doing, you know, hundreds of millions in revenue and one of the largest teams, if not the largest team in the organization. So why leave what is maybe more of like a cushy job where you have impact, you have influence, you have these things that are important to you, but you also have a nice income that you've become accustomed to. You've certainly become accustomed to a certain lifestyle that that type of income provides. So why walk away this new like passion or or desire it had to be pretty darn strong and it had to be pretty convincing like you had to have confidence that this was going to work let's hear about it yeah that's a big question with a lot of factors as answers so i think that i'll kind of just piece through them as i go so i think the first thing is in myself i'm i'm 38 years old in myself I've never been built to just be comfortable. I think, I think comfortability is the enemy of your potential and your success. So if you make decisions based on comfort, I don't think you're going to like where you end up. And I've just proven that in my life. It's actually what led me to leave my first sales job, which was for Verizon, which at the time I was making hundred grand a year. It was 2008. It was a bad economy. And that's actually when I left to go do a new type of sales job in Vivint and I, I risked everything. And then that paid off big time where my income almost tripled that first year. And by the time it was all said and done, it was almost 30x. I mean, I was making uh, with stock and everything over 3 million a year when I left Vivint. So I'd proven that that's the right principles. I'm a, I'm a person that runs my life off of principles. I think it's the only way you can do it. And then you figure out when the principle shows you a way, then you figure out the practical steps from there. And so for me, I started getting comfortable. What I was doing at Vivint was incredibly hard. There's a very small percentage of people, I think, on the planet that could do what I, what we did and even just what we did at Vivint, let alone what I did at Vivint. There's a very, only less than 10 people that were even at that level. But that being said, it was, I was starting to feel comfortable in life. And so that was the first one. The second thing is what I said earlier. We, I believe we all have an obligation to the world, really, to reach for our highest potential. And I just knew with everything Vivint had taught me, I knew that I had all these skills and these talents and all these things I'd learned in the process of watching them go public and everything else that I really owed it to myself and to the world around me to reach for that highest 
version of myself and to build something. And I knew, I knew that was in me that I will one day build something that's, that I can steer the ship. And it wasn't for lack of, I mean, I loved Vivint and I still do. I'm actually headed there after this interview tonight to go speak to the guys. And I get emotional every time I go because my heart, I love those people. Like it's one of the most, it was one of the, it's the best experience work-wise I've ever had. And what I'm doing now is different and I love it, but Vivint was where my heart was for sure. And so, but despite that, I knew there were skills I needed to flex and to go do. And then the last part would be the opportunity in this new realm. For me, I knew something was coming for myself. I knew that there was there would be a new venture that I would head into in before my 40s that I would go and 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 turn into that billion dollar opportunity that I believe I had on the inside and put all these the skills, the talents, everything I've learned and my work ethic into a final run of something huge that would take the influence and the impact I was having and ratchet it up to 11. And so being in a place where I was looking for that and anticipating that, I was on the lookout. And one day, just randomly, I read an article. You've heard me tell the story about the NFT sale that was $70 million. And it wasn't about the money. The money was just a demonstration of that's an absurd amount of money to spend on any single item, let alone something I didn't know what it even was. So after reading the article and watching some videos and the the YouTube uh, rabbit hole, I came to this light bulb moment where I realized this technology that it allowed for a $70 million digital sale of a digital item, just the tech underneath it was really the most amazing thing. And that that technology, I didn't know about $70 million sales. And if I wasn't, that wasn't what interests me. It was the tech that would underlie that and would basically give the ability to take digital items in a world where we're valuing our digital life more than ever before. And our kids will value their digital life more than we did. And their kids will value it more. In a world where this is picking up, that NFT technology, blockchain, giving it a level of physicality would change everything. And so we're already seeing it now where concert tickets and NBA sporting events, and you know, I believe our passports and this technology is going to weave into every part of society. But for me, it was actually video games that I saw uh, becoming the the true peanut butter and jelly match made in heaven moment where the tech would allow you to own the items in a video game. And if you, you know, if you think about it now, and the, the statistic is that there'll be almost $200 billion spent on in-game assets or currencies in video games just this year alone and the total that players have ownership over is zero dollars. And that's crazy when you think about it. And so this technology will disrupt one of the most successful, fastest growing industries in society. And for me, that was the moment that I said, I've got to be a part of that. And obviously my passions and gaming and all that, it was all colliding into one. And so, yeah, that was the start of it. And so this is kind of like that big distinguishing factor between the games that we have today that are Web 2 games, right? Web 2.0. And then we're pivoting to, and and it looks like there's really only one group that has done anything yet with with Web 3, 3 3.0, right? Where in Web 2, you don't have any ownership of any of the skins, the weapons, the in-gaming costs like the the things that you buy that's right but in web 3 you can own them you can actually take them from one game and plug them into another game because yeah. it kind of falls under that banner of like an nft you're you're buying an nft that then you have the ability to move or port to another location right yeah i mean in simple terms right now when you buy something in a normal game it's in your accounts. It's it, you kind of feel like you own it, I guess. But what is ownership? Ownership's the ability to gift it, to sell it. It's true ownership means you can do what you want with it. In a way, they're renting it permanently, but they just they pay for it once, you know, in these other games. And when you take blockchain and put it underneath that item, that item now is in the control of the player. It doesn't hurt the game, but is now in control of the player. And a good example is. Fortnite, you know, they've got these limited edition skins that were released, you know, in each season. And there's even skins called day one skins that were only available right at the very start of the game before it was even popular. 
And those are extremely sought after because they're, a, they're evidence of OG status in the world's most popular game of all time. And even on the right now, on the, on the, we'll call it the black market, where you sell your entire account just to gain access to one of those skins. And it's a really sketchy process where the player has to hand over his, his login details to someone hoping Fortnite doesn't realize they're doing that. They could be in a different country signing in with, a di- you know, there's all these risks on both sides. And then he has to wire the money. And, you know, like who goes first? Do you wire the money and hope you give the login? Do you give the login and you don't have the money yet? And all day long, they sell for twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 on the black market just to gain access to one of those skins. So if you were able to take that individual skin on the blockchain and then sell it on a global marketplace where anyone could buy it, the potential is amazing and just giving the player that option. And so just like so many industries have been disrupted where there was a product that was better for the end user, like Uber struggled and it was the powers that be didn't want them to succeed and tried everything they could. Eventually it win- wins out because it's just a better experience. This is a better value for the player. I spend my time, my money invested in this game. I'm the reason the game's successful and I should then get to own that and not just spend that money for entertainment. And so we're starting to see the trends. PlayStation has now filed for patents to bring NFTs onto their platform. Apple, who at one time made a clear stand saying no NFTs on our platform, they all of a sudden changed that like two months ago. And there's no good games yet. So they're not changing it because there's a game making millions a day that they're missing out on. They're actually changing it I believe, and many believe, because they're in talks with studios that have built prior games on their that have launched on Apple, and those games are saying, we're moving to blockchain, will you support our future game? And Apple's uh, officially come out to say they will. Uh, one of the gaming giants, Square Enix, just said that all their games going forward will be blockchain. In fact, they fired their CEO last week or two weeks ago to replace him with someone that can accelerate blockchain adoption. And Square Enix is one of the largest giants in gaming. And then even people like Supercell that have officially said we don't see the reason to do NFTs, they are secretly investing in NFT projects. I just looked at one the other day called Moonfrost, and Supercell is one of their lead investors. So everyone knows this is coming. It's just a matter of who does it right and what platforms can support it? Because that's actually one of the other big qu- questions. On So now there's the game studios who want to come over, but then there's the blockchain tech and who's going to f- make the premier blockchain tech. And that's still wide open as well. So it, it's an interesting time, but it's the very beginning of a giant shift in an established industry, which doesn't happen often. And that's what, for me, was so compelling because when you have so much money already in the industry, it's not like we're moving into something brand new. We're, it's an established industry that's being disrupted by a simple technology. And those are the moments that you, you know, you get out ahead and you get to the new frontier first. And if you have a good team and a good idea and a good product, you're going to be able to get more land than you ever would if you were, if you just went into a legacy market. So yeah, that it's a exciting time for sure. There's no doubt. And like when I think about this market, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. And by the way, I'm not a gamer. So like I'm not your target market. I don't know any of the details, you know, I mean, in high school, I played Legend of Zelda and Mario Brothers and Mario Kart. I mean, I played Mario Brothers before high school, but so I, I played those. But and in college, maybe I played a little bit of the the new Mario Kart that came out, but I didn't really play. I mean, I played sports more in college and and kind of had a few other extracurricular activities that I really spent my time doing as opposed to gaming. So I'm not the person that knows a lot. But when I heard you kind of explain the dollars being spent in this game, uh, or in this industry and in gaming in general that are kind of locked inside the game and the ability to innovate and create a better way to do it. This is a no brainer. And yeah. it's also really funny when I talk to people like you may be listening to this or watching this right now. And you may say, I don't know if I understand this completely or if I believe this is going to happen. Like, is this happen? You got to know this is already happening. And if you want to know how mainstream yeah. it is and how like 
legit this is, that this is the next thing, talk to your kids about it because your kids know way more than you and they're likely already playing this and they're likely already frustrated with the current framework in infrastructure that doesn't allow them to sell skins, that they have to sell a whole account versus just make a quick transfer via the blockchain that then is audited and confirmed via several other parties. And then there's a ledger of this transaction being done that anyone can verify at any point in time. It 100% is going mainstream. And what's interesting is even in this recent downturn in crypto, we're actually seeing more adoption during this time where there's big studios announcing their next set of games are going to be all blockchain. So it's almost more telling of the trend when there's where there doesn't seem to be the apparent monetary. If crypto's booming and every game that says they're making a token just suddenly is worth a bunch of money, that could attract a lot of people. But in a down market where it's even optically a little challenging to say we're going into crypto because a lot of people don't understand. They've got cryptocurrency over here. They've got gaming and even NFTs. NFTs, pure NFTs are a different category from gaming NFTs. And so just being involved in the market, people reach out to me, oh, the market's down. How does that make you feel? And I'm like, well, it doesn't really have anything to do with us because we're we're building a video game and our token will be used by the players. And so like, it's really just build a good game. That's really the, the mission and uh, which we have a great team to do that. So even with all the misunderstanding out there, you're seeing the trend. And in fact, there's a, a streamer that, again, anyone watching this with kids that play games, they're going to know this name, Dr. Disrespect. He's one of the most popular Twitch streamers in the world for gaming. And he is is launching a game with NFTs. And, you know, he's getting a lot of love because of the excitement and even, you know, some hate because they there's still a misunderstanding. But when you simplify it, every single gamer that I've explained the concept of ownership to, they just go, well, of course, I, w- I would rather own it than not own it. And so what we're now waiting for is good games. We've had the introduction of ownership with terrible games, which had a short-lived life. They blew up. Billions were made overnight as the the crypto market dumped money into tokens associated with terrible games. And then now we've seen a reset of that. And now there's a lot of good games being developed. And I think my prediction is we'll have the first wave towards the end of this year and into next year. And those will be your first just few hundred AAA experiences that offer ownership. And we're going to see mass adoption both on the from players, but then also the cryptocurrency market, because when you can buy Shiba Inu coin that doesn't do anything, or you, and sorry for anyone who has Shiba, but when you can buy a cryptocurrency that doesn't do anything, and you can buy one that's just connected with an, a gaming ecosystem that gets used every day by players, you're going to buy that one because there's real users and none of these other coins are real daily users. And then also adoption by the players. I think that's when we, we're going to really catch the attention of the entire gaming market, players will start to express their need to own their items. Because when you've played a game where you own stuff and you go back to a game where you don't, it feels hollow. Like as a gamer myself, I cannot spend more than a few maybe days invested in any one game because eventually I'm just like, none of this matters. I'm spending money and I own nothing. And I'm going to leave one day with no value, all sunk cost. And if this was just a blockchain game, it would be no sunk cost. And that that feels like the what I want. I don't want to settle for the other. And so, you know, it's it's one person at a time, but uh, adoption feels as guaranteed as possible. And that's one of the reasons I felt comfortable to leave what I was doing and move into this new realm. So, yeah. Yeah, I have no doubt adoption is inevitable in this space. You know, it's interesting. It, it would almost be a fun exercise to break down the things that maybe a lot of our listeners, a lot of those viewing don't fully understand. So like when I look at the world and by the way, you are going to look at the world differently than me and you're going to have better answers and definitions. But like I look at the world and I'll just break it down. So to me, there's blockchain, which is the the foundation of everything, all things in, in Web 3.0. And I believe there's a use case on many levels for blockchain in today's world, not even in a virtual world, in a real world where you can 
use this to this could be replace like title companies and the way that deeds are yeah. done and, and and there's so many levels like attorneys uh smart contracts where payments are automatically made really cool things there and then you've got this world of crypto but i kind of put crypto over here and then i put bitcoin over here and then i got ethereum in the middle so to me it's like yeah. bitcoin is one specific thing with kind of the the most proven track record the best use case the most I think utility of anything out there. And then you've got Ethereum, which is quickly gaining steam because this is yeah. kind of like the the token. This is your transactional token for a lot of things, for art, for gaming, for a lot of different stuff. And then all the other cryptocurrency to me is very speculative until it can prove itself. That's right. From there, we've got NFTs. We've got that'd be non-fungible tokens which are still going to be rooted in blockchain, just like cryptocurrency is rooted in blockchain. Yep. And then you've got Web3, which is kind of like the all-encompassing category, today's yep. web category, stacking yep. all the different things, the applications and utility, the tokens. But I'd love to hear any corrections or additions to that yeah. just so people can understand kind of what it looks like because once you understand web3 and the different categories of web3 then you understand the tokens inside of gaming a little better yeah because there's so much utility when when you buy a token inside of an ecosystem that is widely used then there's intrinsic value in those tokens. So it's not like this money is spent and gone like it is in a lot of the Web2 games. You spend dollars, you use tokens, whatever, it's used up. In Web3, like it is very possible you could spend money, earn skins, tokens, different things, different you know utilities, and then you can sell them later. You can sell them for more. You can end up making money in these games, not even based on how competent of a gamer you are, but basically just on some of the OG categories of highly desirable yeah. items. Collectibles, like a, like a Pokemon card that was released early, it's worth tens of thousands. And then ones released a week ago are just new collectibles that future speculators or just collectors are hoping will be worth something. So yeah, I, I think, I mean, you actually hit the lay of the land really well. I think Web3 is the category that all Web3 stuff is built on. Bitcoin, of course, is really almost like a store of value. It's almost like our version of gold in this this realm. There's a lot of people that only ever will touch Bitcoin from an investment standpoint and will never touch another protocol out there. Ethereum has established themselves as the main layer to build on. So they took what Bitcoin did and really solved a lot of the problems Bitcoin had from a scalability standpoint. Bitcoin is really hard to build on. And that's why it's almost just seen as a financial tool or a store of value like gold. Whereas Ethereum is really a protocol that you're building on. So NFTs really were the, the first NFT is just a different category of token on Ethereum. But most tokens out there, most of these speculative ones are really an Ethereum-based token. So even when someone wants to make their XYZ token, they go, they'll go to Ethereum and it's called an ERC-20 protocol and they'll, they'll just spin up a token and you can just make a billion of them or a trillion of them. And then they are given value if people are willing to trade ETH for them. So you've got I mean, literally millions of those tokens, some of which have real value, some of which don't. There are a few other ones, Polygon, Solana, d different ones that are also, uh, they tout themselves as layers to come build on layer ones or layer twos, and they offer innovations that Ethereum doesn't offer. So they say, we're faster, we're cheaper, we're this, we're that. And that's what's still yet to be seen. Who's been going to become the preferred protocol to build games on and that's that that's an opportunity and whoever does that right as a token or a protocol is going to make a lot of money as well because eventually if you want to take millions of games and bring them over to blockchain you've got to have the right chain for that and so there's still a war happening between a bunch of chains trying to vie for top spot but that's the protocol layer now each individual game might still release a token for inside their video game that has nothing to do with the layer it's built on it's just their token and like you said it's replacing the 
gold or the gems that you have inside of your video game. So right now in Fortnite, you've got something called V-Bucks, and that's what you use to buy skins with. So you come in with dollars, you trade it in for V-Bucks, and then you buy your skin. In a blockchain world, if Fortnite was a blockchain-based game, V-Bucks would either be its own cryptocurrency or would be tied next to one where you've got kind of the what they would call the hard currency that's trapped inside the video game. And then there's a, you know, maybe it's named the same thing, one that trades and they would interact. And then the skins would be an NFT. So you actually own that physical item. And the only difference between a, a cryptocurrency and a, an NFT is that an NFT is an, has an individual line of code that makes that one individual token unique. Whereas like, again, Ethereum, all you see is uh, balances trading places. So when you look on the ledger, you're seeing balances. You're seeing 20 Ethereum over here, a million Ethereum over there, 10 Ethereum over there, and balances just move around. Actual NFTs, though it's also built on Ethereum, they're a special type of token that has its own line of code. So I can follow that one back to its origin and I can actually see its story. Like I sold an NFT myself that I bought to Gary V. And the way I knew that is because Gary V's wallet popped up as the guy who bought it from me. And I happened to buy it for, uh, I think around a hundred dollars. And I knew it was an artist that was about to launch a collection. And then Gary bought it from me for about 11,000 about 10 days later, which was a great little trade, you know, to go from a hundred bucks to 11,000. So, and then now I could see that Gary then subsequently did something else with it and you can follow that. So yeah. And then most cryptocurrencies are just gambling really. I mean, you're, you're just betting on a token, hoping they do something. And that's why, though I'm not a fan of that, I'm a big believer in gaming tokens in general, if the game is fun. So if you have a token associated with a good game or set of games, or even a open protocol, like we're using our token in our video games, and we'll have multiple games that will work with the same token. We're also making it an open protocol with some features that we're, we haven't announced yet that other games will be able to come build on our protocol. And so that really allows it to have a lot of use cases, both from our players and from other games that don't want to make their own token, but they want to build on blockchain and offer some unique features that we tweak that cater just to gaming. So yeah, there's a lot out there. I love it. That was so well said. And uh, I'm glad that you elaborated because it's it's helpful, I think, for everyone to kind of wrap their mind around what uh, each of these different layers is, what the different protocols are. So very, very well done. One thing I want to make sure that we do talk about before we wrap up here is the game that you're building. Tell us more about that and about this incredible team that you've assembled. I I have kind of more of the insider scoop knowing you and having the opportunity to kind of take a deep dive in, in what you're doing and, and this desire to be part of your project because I just think it's fun and cool and brilliant and totally diversified from the way that I normally invest and allocate my portfolio. So I would love to learn more about the actual game itself because I'm not even a gamer and I can't wait to play it. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, we set out first to assemble a great team because when I saw the initial excitement of the crypto market and players to have games that have either a token or NFTs or both, and have ownership, and we saw this massive spark of desire with games that were really terrible, that was evidence that there's something special here. And this was this was a year and a half ago when PlayStation hadn't filed for patents and Apple was still saying no games, but I we saw these signs and we knew adoption was go- like we're seeing now was gonna happen. But we, we also knew that you had to have a good video game. You can't just release a game with a token and say, here it is. It's got a token. So that makes up for the fact that the game is bad. So after launching our NFT that gave access, early access to uh, players to kind of watch the game be built from behind the curtain, we sold out in five minutes. We brought in $1.5 million in five minutes. And at that point, I then pivoted to go recruit the best team possible and I was really fortunate to meet one of my co-founders, Kevin Lambert, 
who uh, was, you know, the lead designer on Solitaire, uh, right on the App Store that everyone knows that's in the Hall of Game of Faming, right next to World of Warcraft and Fortnite. His game almost has a billion lifetime downloads. He helped run the mobile game studio inside of Microsoft. So brilliant, brilliant, brilliant game designer. And he was in my community. He had minted my NFT and loved the messaging and the way I was approaching the industry. And I was one of the only founders with an actual business background with success in the past, massive success, knew how to build a company. And so he reached out and said, are you recruiting a team? And I said, I am. And we started talking and that led to him leaving Microsoft, coming on board. Through him, we connected with my CTO and my COO, who Brian and Mike, who have run a studio called Hidden Pixel, and they've been a, a part of multiple projects before, Brian being in the industry almost 30 years, Mike 25 years. Mike was executive producer on Deer Hunter, another game that had, you know, was made almost half a billion dollars and 5 million daily players at the peak. So guys with a ton of success in the past had been a part of successful exits, really OGs in the space. And they loved the vision and the idea of putting together an all-star team to go into this new industry where there were really no, there was no competition yet for good games. There were no good games out. And there were only a few decent teams starting to build. And so we really felt by moving quickly, we could be one of the premier projects in the space before any of the, the really, really big boys got into the space. And so we put together a small team. We've since then recruited. We've got some amazing guys from the team from King who built Candy Crush and uh, Apex Legends Mobile. And we've continued to add. So the team's actually gotten even better and bigger since I last talked to you. But we put together a great team. And, and then we sat back and thought, well, what do we want to build? And really, it wasn't about building one game because ownership, you mentioned being able to take your assets and move them out to another game. And that is the future of it. There will be IPs and games that talk to each other that, hey, you can take your characters and put it in ours and vice versa. And we're in talks with some of the biggest IPs in the NFT space. So almost similar to how Fortnite is partnered with all these different movie IPs and they brought those characters in. We'll be doing stuff like that in our world and our characters and others. But to really control the quality of the product and deliver the best experience to the player, you can't rely on other IPs to give ownership value. You need to do that yourself. And so what we've designed is one world, one IP, we call it Bloodlines. And I won't go into a ton of detail and give away some of the secret sauce yet, but we're building one world, one IP, and it'll have multiple experiences. So you'll come in and you can play our first game, which we're um, about nine months from private beta and probably 18 months from release. Again, all those dates subject to change. We're going to we're focusing on quality, and so when it's ready and we feel happy about it, we'll release it. But that first game will allow players to come in, start to invest their time, if they want to, some money, buying things, skins, whatever. And as they build up a their items and, and their experience, that will eventually transfer to the second game and to the third game with a social hub eventually in the middle as well. And so There'll be multiple experiences, and it's kind of building an entire ecosystem one game at a time, designed primarily for the iPhone, but will work on computer as well, or iPhone and Android. So you'll have quick, short play sessions, but you're building upon a much bigger world. And what, we, what we're excited about for that is if you're a player and you want to have, you want to be able to spend a small amount of time or a lot of time in a world you can know that over the next 10, 15 years, there are multiple new, fresh, exciting experiences coming to you in this world where the time you've spent in that first game is not sunk time. You can transfer it over, transfer it over, transfer it over. So you get to kind of partner with a great world and continue to have fresh experiences and the time you've invested continues to still have value and grow. And we really believe players are excited about that and will come by the millions to our world and then obviously to, to many others that are out there. So yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah, that sounds incredible, Tim. Tell me more specifics about the game. This sounds amazing. When we sat down with our team and we wanted to build a game, we realized for ownership to really have the most amount of value, you have to be able to move the items, not just out of your game to other IPs, but really within the same world. And, you know, it's really interesting. Supercell, one of the most successful mobile studios, they have Clash of Clans, Clash Royale, 
Brawl Stars, and now they're building a game actually somewhat similar to the one we're building for our first game. But you don't have any value across those titles, even though it's the same studio. So we looked at that and thought that's the approach that we feel has the most value long term, where a player can come in and with our first game, he can spend time and if he wants to some money and he can invest into our world and play that game for two, three, four years. And when the next game comes out three years later, he has a new experience that he can bring over the value and the representation of that time or maybe money and bring that over to the next experience, bring the skins over, bring some experience over, bring the collectibles over and have compounding value as a player. And so it's really it's really reversing the current model that's out there where I come in, I spend money in this first game, maybe I lose a little interest in playing that game over and over again. And when I leave it, I might go play another game from that same studio, but I have to start all over. None of my skins transfer, none of the stuff I brought over transfers, all that is sunk cost, sunk value. But in our world, you carry that with you. And we have really a a collectible ownership piece that spans all our experiences. And so our first game is 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 really what we would call like a battle chess game. It's a combination. It's it's really the only part that relates to chess is that it's kind of on a chess board, but it's little guys. And it's a very popular growing genre. And there's a couple innovations we're making to the genre that we think will improve it as a whole. So it's a very exciting you quick play sessions. You play versus another player. It's really fun. It's really engaging. But it allows you to start collecting, leveling up your characters, collecting skins, building this account, basically. And then when that next experience comes out, you can play, you can still continue to play the first one, but now you have immediate value in the second one and it compounds as you play each experience. And so we really just thought if you, as a gamer, whether you're 15 years old or 50 years old, and you want to come in and bring your time and or your money into our world, we want to give you 10, 15 years of experiences where the value just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And that's what we've designed. And so, yeah, we're, we're really excited. You know, we're, we're about nine months from uh, releasing our first kind of NFTs in that world, in the world of Bloodlines and the official launch of the brand, as well as our closed beta, where we'll allow the early holders to get some access. And then, you know, the, the actual launch will come when we feel like the first game is ready. And then, yeah, it'll just build upon that. We're kind of building this whole ecosystem with a social area in the middle and all that, where you can have both short play experiences, but a long lasting value that builds on itself. So it's, uh, it's really exciting. It's going to be awesome. So Tim, tell us where we can find out more about you and more about Bloodlines. So I think for me, my socials, uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, Timothy Yesta. So it's J-O-O-S-T-E. And you'll, you'll find me there. So Timothy Yesta on both Twitter and Instagram. And then our current website where you can find out more about Bloodlines is actually our studio website, which is Coin Games with a K. So K-O-I-N, coingames.io. And we will have a Bloodlines website debuting in about nine months, closer to the release of that launch of the IP and the actual game world. So coingames.io, if you want to see behind the curtain, we have an NFT, the, the Coin Games Dev Squad, as you see here, that you can actually, or if, even if your kids would love to watch a game be made behind the curtain, we're, you know, our, our community is even helping write lore for characters. They're helping name characters. We're actually involving the community in the build process where we can. And so if you or anyone in your family would enjoy that, you can even grab an NFT on OpenSea, the Coin Games Dev Squad. You can find the link on our website and that'll give you access to the behind the scenes experience of building the game. And yeah, I think that would be the best place to start. I'm happy always to connect. And so if anyone wants to reach out to me and chat, I love talking about this stuff. That's so much fun. And I appreciate you making yourself available, Tim. But yeah, I love ending every podcast episode with a question that I ask my listeners. And I ask the same question every week. And I hope that every week, everyone is taking some form of action on it. But here's my question once again, just to kind of wrap things up here for the day. What is one step you can take today to move towards financial freedom and move towards living a life that you truly desire, one that's on your terms, one that is by design, not by default? 
I'm excited about all the cool things that we have in store on this podcast moving forward this year, 2023 and beyond. And we've got a few surprises in the works. So thanks for always tuning in and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who would benefit from this episode, would you mind sharing it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all resources mentioned, visit www.lifestyleinvestor.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor. This podcast is being made available exclusively to financially sophisticated, high net worth individuals capable of evaluating the merits and risks of investments. The material presented in this podcast is not intended to be investment advice or to recommend the purchase or sale of any security, nor is it intended to be legal, accounting, or tax advice. You should consult with your legal, tax, or financial advisor in connection with any material discussed on this podcast. Past performance is not indicative nor a guarantee of future results. Certain materials discussed on this podcast may have been prepared by third parties, which have been obtained from sources that we believe to be accurate and current. However, we make no representation or warranty as to the accuracy, completeness, or currency of such materials.